Good morning. Welcome. Uh, as we turn to the Gospel of John, uh, yet again, uh, this time in chapter 10, uh, verses 22 to 42. And this is what it says. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long? Will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptising at first, and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign that everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Amen. Well, from chapter 1, verse 19, to this point in the Gospel, uh, it, uh, the book has been at pains to provide evidence of who Jesus is. Uh, from the moment that we're introduced to John the Baptist, way back in chapter 1, we have been presented uh, an array of witnesses, a, a multitude of evidential signs, each of which tell us that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. He is God with us. As such, with each passing chapter, with each compelling testimony, and with each demonstration of his miraculous power, there has been less and less room to really wonder who he is. Instead, increasingly, the question has shifted away from who he is to what are we going to do about it. As the gospel unfolds, it is increasingly incumbent on man not to fathom who he is, but faced with all that evidence to decide whether to accept or reject him. With that choice, with that important decision comes conflict. 
Uh, for those who reject him will reject him utterly. Uh, conflict has been increasingly prevalent from chapter 5, and here it begins to spill out into violence. And what is more, this conflict will continue to grow, continue to gain momentum. The storm clouds of the pharisaical anger, the horror of the Sanhedrin, will ultimately spill over into the crucifixion. It is important to note then how John centres many of the flashpoints around the various feasts. Um, With each festival, uh, the conflict increases, it goes up a notch. So that when the religious leaders attempt to destroy Christ on the cross, we see that it is the culmination of what has gone before. The many claims to be God that has broken that camel's back. With each passing festival then, there is a build-up of hostility from the Jewish authorities. For they have been called to accept a Messiah that is not moulded into their image. They have been called to bend the knee to a king who cares little for their vested interests and petty politics. They have been called to admit that the God they think they have made safe, thought they could confine to a narrow box, was far too large, far too glorious, far too wonderful for the straitjacket of their restrictions, their legal barriers, their small-minded rule-keeping. They have been called to see that he is a God who would walk with sinners, eat with those of a low station, laugh and love those who have done nothing but earn condemnation. A God who reaches out to the lawbreakers and says, come. A God who instead of giving preferential treatment to the religious, tells them, these religious leaders, these pompous, puffed up, self-righteous ones, yeah, you too, come to me, just like anyone else. To come to me, to hear my voice, to be known by me and receive the gift of eternal life. And they are to receive it, not by merit, not by their own greatness, but simply because he is the Messiah, because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Now, it turns out this is a hard message for some, and we see people rejecting it in John chapter 10. However, just as we have seen the whole way through this gospel, whilst there are some who will reject there are others who will believe. So for every denial uh, that we read about, we will also have a a woman at the well. Uh, For every uh, crowd that pick up the stones and shout condemnation, uh, we have a Samaritan town ready to receive him as the Messiah. For every Pharisee that rejects him, we have disciples, noblemen, uh, blind beggars who will believe. And this contrast continues, not just through this book, Not just through the next one in the Bible, but through the last 2,000 years, with no sign of slowing down. The decision to reject Christ is actually where we left the passage last week in verses 19 to 21. Again, we are told there that there was a split along the line of rejection or acceptance between those who will resist and those who will believe. Unable to deny his power, 
Incapable of diminishing the miraculous signs that accompany his words, they wish to dismiss him as one possessed, to reduce his claims to the ravings of a madman. This has been a tactic that has been used on previous occasions. But even as they try it out, even as they say it, it rings hollow, as we read in verse 21. But then others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, this is a reference to the, to the miracle in the previous chapter, in chapter 9, uh, that miracle that had actually caused quite a stir. It is also, though, a not-so-veiled reference to one of the signs of Messiah. As such, the point that we left the passage at last week is something of a cliffhanger. Um, not only is the defence of insanity or, or, or possession shown to be an empty argument, but hanging in the air is the fact that Jesus has shown himself to be the Messiah. He has ticked the boxes. The evidence is there. And so once again, the people are being asked not to decide who Jesus is, but, but whether they will believe, whether they will accept him or not. His claims stack up, but will they believe? The evidence tells them that he is the Messiah. And so the tension in the text rises as we paused, as we wait for the rest of the chapter, the passage today, as we wonder, will they finally let go of their pride? Will they believe? Well, verse 22 tells us that many will instead choose not to believe. Uh, the reference to winter um, has a twofold purpose. It acts as a reference to the time of year, but more importantly, it acts as a warning for what's going to come because it is a description of the hearts of the people. Uh, after all, the text would normally just tell us what the feast was. That's enough. Uh, that's enough information. It's sufficient uh, in terms of plotting it on a calendar. We would know there's the, te- the, the, the feast, and there it is on the calendar. And so this added description of winter also serves to add uh, that warning about the people, about the hearts of the people, um, as much as it tells us about the weather. As it is made clear in this passage, we have come to a critical point in this gospel. We've come to a critical point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. In verse 24, the people encircle him. That's the, the, the import of the word there. They surround him. And they want to finally put the question to bed. Are you the Messiah? Stop leaving us in suspense. However, as Jesus makes clear and as the tone of the rest of the passage underlines, there is no need for any doubt. I have already told you, is his response. There is now no room for confusion. There is no room for any doubts. Jesus himself has made it clear, and he goes on to make it clear, that now it is simply a case of believe or don't believe, not a question of who he is. And as part of that, he returns to that wider theme of the chapter, his being the good shepherd and those who believe being his sheep. Now, of course, his hearers were familiar with sheep. There was probably sheep in the temple, even as he was speaking. However, he's not just simply seizing on a handy visual aid. This is a description that speaks 
really uh, importantly into who he is. It is a reference to the Old Testament. That Bible of the people of the time frequently speaks about sheep and shepherds and particularly about God as the good shepherd. As well as famous texts such as Psalm 23 where even the king had to acknowledge that there was one greater than him, one who led him as a shepherd, who guided him. Uh, There were also a number of shepherd promises that we find in the prophets. You see, the kings of Israel and Judah were ultimately a failure. These self-interested rulers had neglected the people, had they had led them to disaster, and so through the prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, God denounces these kings as awful shepherds. And as such, God then promises, I will shepherd my people. He is saying, I am everything that you need. So when we fast forward to John chapter 10 and we hear what is being said, we hear Jesus saying that he is the good shepherd. Well, he is saying, I am everything that was promised. I am everything that those kings failed to be. I am God come to you, to lead you, to care for you, to provide for you, to protect you and to be with you forever. When the Jews are asking, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised shepherd? Are you the great king? Jesus responds by saying, I have already told you. You've heard me say it. But you did not believe. However, as he once again declares that he is God, that he is the one that gives eternal life, one with the Father, the crowd get ready to stone him to death. Those who thought that Jesus was a messianic pretender, one out to deceive. Well, they thought that one who illegitimately claimed to be God deserved to die. Blasphemy equaled death. And so in the rest of the chapter, Jesus will respond to them. And he does so in a way that doesn't just simply make the stones fall from their hands. He does it in a way that dismantles the arguments that they have wanted to place against his messianic claims. So first he starts off with what they cannot dismiss, the miraculous signs that could only have happened through the power of God. Uh, Which of these have caused you to come for my life, he asks. And someone cornered the Jews' reply, well, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, it's for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. So in response, Jesus cites Psalm 82, at the key point of that text, being that those who work as agents of God are legitimately called the sons of God. Uh, Now, uh, please note, he's not just trying to muddy the waters to prevent uh, a stoning. Rather, having forced them to acknowledge the miraculous signs and the right, therefore, to be called a son of God when acting on behalf of God, he rather puts them on the back foot. For with the evidence of the miracles sustaining his claims to have come from God, he then rightly claims to speak for God, to speak as a son of God. So why then do they wish to silence him? How can they wish to reject the words just because they don't like what he says? And this is why he concludes in verses 37 to 38, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then... Don't believe me. But if I do them, 
even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that may, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Undone, they are once again forced to see that the question is not over who he is, but what they are going to do about it. And so the chapter and the section of chapters 5 to 10, which is known as the, the festival cycle, it closes. And it does also the rather interesting reference to John the Baptist. Now, we've not heard of him since uh, chapter 5, verses 33 to 35, where he was cited by Jesus as a witness to him and the messianic mission. Indeed, the very purpose of John's ministry was summed up in John 1, verse 31. Now, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. The reason, then, that John is included once again, is because his ministry to reveal Christ, to say who he is, has been done. As I've stated, at this point it is no longer a question of who he is, but what he will do with him. It is the question that each of us has to answer even to this day. For as he knocks on the door of our hearts, what will we do? And so the final words of the chapter bring us to what matters. For when all is said and done, when the threats against his life have been thwarted, when all the arguments have been laid out, what is the one thing that really matters? It's belief. And as the chapter ends, many Turn to Jesus. This is what is at stake. Listen again to verses 27 to 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. When Jesus says that he knows you. It means that you're no longer a faceless number in a crowd, lost among a seething mass of people. It means that if no one else knows you, really knows you, Jesus knows you. He does not simply know about you, though he knows everything about you. He really knows you. He understands you. He knows your fears and your joys, your trials and temptations. He knows your sorrows. He knows your hopes and desires. He knows your dreams. He knows the things that keep you up at night, the things that rush into your mind when you awake in that morning. He knows you. He really knows you. He knows how you think. He knows how you feel. He knows his sheep. And his voice calls out to the sheep. Now, I have to say that the the idea that sheep are stupid is no myth. Uh, Indeed, I I remember how I used to look at, uh, say, a sheep with its head stuck in the fence and think, what a ridiculously foolish creature it is. It allowed me sometimes to forget that sheep is a very good description for us. We too, very often, are foolish creatures. Indeed, I think that my sense of superiority over sheep lasted until the day I saw a man on Union Street with his head stuck in a public bin. Jesus is right to describe us as sheep. Sometimes there's very little difference. How often we find ourselves easily led by someone other than the shepherd. How quickly we find ourselves enamoured by all the wrong things. 
captivated by whatever shiny thing catches our eye. That thing that lies maybe just out of reach. Compelled by the desire that can be met just over there, we trot off until we find ourselves trapped, trapped by our own desires, trapped and needing rescue. I'm afraid sheep is an all too accurate description. Well, the wonder of it all is that the shepherd rescues. He calls and then we get to listen to his voice as he leads us. And he leads us not just on a path, not just on a a path of good living. He leads us to eternal life, to be with him forever, safe with him forever, a life with him that will never end, if we would but listen, if we would but believe. Thank you.